Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to our next episode of Credit Crunch in the FIC Focus stream. This is Mahesh Bhimalingam, your host, Chief European Credit Strategist at uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of uh, Bloomberg. This episode is very personal to me uh, because today's guest, uh, I have a very long and deep relation through my career. If at all, there is one who I owe uh, in my uh, professional life, it's him. I am glad and honored to have Robert McKady, Chief uh, Cross-Asset Strategist at uh, BNP Paribas uh, as our guest. He has been uh, in uh, various head of research roles, uh, global head of, uh, of multi-asset research in various banks uh, before his current process at allocation uh, role. Welcome, Robert. Thank you very much. So I'm sure we will have to address the elephant in the room uh, first, which is this banking crisis that has hurt multiple asset classes, not just credit. So we've had about four banks get into trouble uh, in the U.S., regional banks, and one large bank in Europe. Do you see more uh, coming um, or do you see more of that risk stemming from the smaller banks in the U.S. or there are some systemic risks even in Europe? Look, it's difficult to say. Um, what I would say about Europe first is that the swift action by the Swiss National Bank curtailed the contagion risk that could potentially occur in Europe. Furthermore, the banking regulation and oversight in Europe is pretty consistent across all sizes of institution from small to large, unlike in the US. So quite frankly, I would argue that contagion risk is low in Europe. In the US, it's more difficult to say because clearly there's a lot of small regional banks which have not had the same level of scrutiny as the larger institutions. That's why it's critically important that uh, Yellen uh, institutes a, a process which basically instills confidence back in the market. Basically, what we have right now is a situation where uh, there is concern, there is lack of confidence, and that always leads to people pulling out their deposits and putting them in money market funds. Uh, as you know, which are paying you very, very rewardingly at this current juncture. Do you think the regulatory authorities both on both sides of the Atlantic need to take any further measures uh, to stem or to draw a line under this uh, issue? I think we have to wait to see. Um, you know, we, I think markets always tend to overreact as they do. Uh, regulators have come out very clearly stating what the, what the risks that they see, and they've already put uh, certain st state, uh, safeguards in place, particularly in, in the US, but also in Europe. So I think we just have to wait and see. So when I look at this picture from you, your standpoint, how do you see it affecting credit markets? So, you know, credit has had a bit of a wild ride, given that, you know, the banking crisis is sort of seen as a credit issue. So in investment grade, we went from 145 to uh, 175 now. Before in the middle, it hit a 220 uh, base point peak. In high yield, we went from from 400 
to 550 and now we are down to about 500. So where does this leave credit? You know, using our favorite normalized spread measure, mm-hmm. which we used, uh, which we used to use it, at, you know, in our career before. Uh, high yield and investment grade in Europe have gone from about one standard deviation rich to now flat. So the markets are essentially saying they are fairly priced for their volatility in Europe. In US, though, they have gone from about half a standard deviation uh, rich to about one standard deviation cheap. So there's been a bigger correction in the US. Now, going into, you know, sectorally, uh, obviously financials took a bigger hit in spreads. But given what has happened in the on the bond side, you know, especially with the five-year rallying by about basis, 80 basis points due to this crisis, uh, returns-wise, the financials, are, even though they've underperformed, there's still positive returns in this month. But I think one way to clearly see it is in the CDS market. So if you look at the senior financials, versus Maine in ITRAX, senior financials are now trading near COVID peak in terms Mm, of gap with Maine. So if, you know, this sanguine view that, you know, uh, in Europe particularly, you're uh, you're not going to see as much of a systemic risk as probably in the US, there is room for upside probably in, uh, in, in financials. With that, I think we can move on to the other big story affecting credit, which is central banks. So, uh, Robert, the Fed has, you know, uh, hiked by a much smaller amount this time. Uh, They did indicate that they will hike more if needed. Uh, I think that is priced in by the market. Are you in the camp of a Fed pause in 2023 or a Fed pivot in 2023? Look, I think you've got to bear in mind that the impact of this regional banking crisis and what's happened here in Europe is one which is going to drive a contraction in lending conditions. So I think one of the most uh, key pieces of data that not only the market, but also the Fed are going to be looking at and the ECB is going to be the senior loan officer survey. Yep. It has tightened. Yep. It's not as tight as what it was in the height of COVID. Yep. But I would argue, given what has occurred, is that it will tighten to as tight as what we saw in COVID. And that has a direct implication for SMEs has a direct implication for corporates and households, and that contraction in credit will lead to uh, potentially a rise in default rates, and that in turn will lead to less pressure on on, on uh, labor markets, and the economy will slow. So effectively, it does part of the work for the Fed and the ECB. So probably, so you're saying probably the need to need to use rate hikes as an instrument to tighten is less, given Correct. that financial conditions are them. And that the market is now pricing in peak rates in, in, in the May meeting and effectively 90 basis points, 91 basis points of rate cuts to through to the end of the year. So the market's already priced that in. Whether the Fed, you know, does pause come the May meeting is still unclear. I think a lot depends on what we see in the senior loan officer survey. Do you think the Fed will cut though? Um, at the moment, our economists are of the view that the Fed will not cut. So in 2023, we won't see a cut? So, so far. But it, clearly, if we're heading into a hard landing, then yes, they will be forced to cut. So I think, I mean, the, some people could be in for a disappointment because the markets, if you look at what the you know Fed futures or the swap markets are pricing, they are pricing in a cut. Yeah, they are. Pri- yeah. As I said, they're pricing in 91 basis points. Of yeah, so some disappointment. But there. I mean, we've seen overshoots and undershoots. The market was dislocated relative to the Fed before, and then it came back when it was all concerns around inflation, and we were in inflationary mode. Now we're in recessionary mode. So the pendulum has swung from inflation, tail risk, 
uh, to to recession tail risk. And, you know, that's obviously changing sentiment in the market. And we can see that in terms of curves where we had big, big flattener trades on, which have been unwound. And now we're in steepener trades. Right. So now let's move on to the ECB. What do you think? Do you think they have a lot more room to go? And what about their QT program? Do you think that they're going to increase pace? Um, look, I doubt they're going to increase the pace. I think central banks are wary around uh, pushing up term premium too aggressively. And maybe that's even more acute for the US given the US mortgage market. Um, but at the end of the day, if Europe is not heading into recession, then I think it's more room for the bank, for the ECB to effectively tighten monetary policy. That said, uh, our expectations for terminal rates uh, is around about three and a half percent. In fact, we've revised it down on the impact, obviously, this banking crisis and tighter lending conditions. Um, uh, we see two more rate hikes in May and June of 25 basis points each. Uh, on to the BOE. They've been the most aggressive in terms of uh, QT. Any views on them, uh, on their rate hikes, as well as their QT program? Well, you know, they've hiked rates yesterday by 25 basis points. I think the UK obviously is at the brunt and has been exacerbated because of the Brexit situation around labor markets. Look, at the end of the day, they will continue on their program unless they see a severe economic downturn. So a lot is predicated on data um, uh, and a lot is predicated on the fact that inflation is still distinctly high um, and is surprised on the upside. So... Uh, you know, I think they will obviously take it step by step. Okay. So when I look at this impact, as you asked me around central banks and QT, what is your view in terms of how it's going to impact credit markets? Yeah, I think the Fed is, you know, well choreographed and it is not a major player in the credit market, but the ECB is probably the largest central bank in credit markets. They have about 390 billion corporate bonds in their holdings. And the ECB has announced that the QE will start in March and it has already started. And they're not going to be replacing a particular amount of redemptions every month. That is their way of QT in the in the QT, in the corporate bond program. So that amounts to about 1.5 billion whole every month. Now, uh, so the, for the four months they've announced uh, their pace, we are looking at about 6 billion uh, reduction in corporate bond holdings. We are waiting for the future pace. And as you said, if they're not going to accelerate the pace, so probably it is going to continue at that rate. Uh, what we've seen, by the way, in the first three weeks of March, they've already reduced it by a billion. So they are going at the rate as they promised, despite whatever has been going on. So, so that's the ECB, I think, uh, well-priced in. Uh, but the main worry is the ECB might go down the route of the BOE. The BOE have been very aggressive. So from the beginning of the year to now, in two and a half months, they've reduced it by 5 billion. And just to put it in context, the BOE started with just 20 billion corporate bond holdings. So very tiny compared to the ECB. So for from such a small holdings, their pace of reduction is massive. So probably the BOE is going to exhaust all its uh, corporate bond holdings by... Uh, by the first half, which is why sterling credit has underperformed euro credit. And my main concern is if the BO, if the ECB will go down the BOE route in accelerating uh, corporate bond sales. So with that, we can move on to 
the topic you mentioned on the yield curve. So, you know, the rates market has been hands down the most uh, volatile market in the world right now. More, more volatile than stocks, more volatile than credit. Uh, and if you see during the banking crisis, the yield moves have been massive. Uh, I mean, obviously, it has benefited fixed income holders for now. But you know what all happened during 2022, right? So with that, do you think uh, the U.S. Treasury is going to stay below 3.5% the 10-year? Look, um, I, I, you know, levels, you know, whether it's 35 or 4%, I mean, at the end of the day, what I can say is that the economy is slowing. Yeah. Uh, what I can say is that there's still inflation. Uh, what we do know is that this banking crisis is going to lead to a, a contraction in lending conditions, but also a contraction in liquidity. So if that is the case, I think the steepening bias that we've seen on the curve will be maintained for now. And what if that is the case, clearly, if uh, we see the senior loan officer survey coming in far tighter than expected, yes, then most likely the, the Fed will pause. Right. So which means you you believe that the current curve inversion will keep correcting? Will keep well basically will steepen. Yes. Will steepen. So you'll you'll need to see economic growth rebound uh, and inflation rebound for the curve to shift back and a and a curtailment of this current regional banking crisis. Okay. Uh, any view on real yields because that has a key impact on many other uh, markets. Well, you know, real yields are positive, and clearly we've gone from a period of very negative real yields, and that's uh, shifted us into a different world today, which yep. always rising real yields tends to have an impact on risky assets. Um, look, uh, I think nominal yields have come off, basically, in around the 10-year mark, at least 50 basis points or so, so, uh, so have real yields. But I think bottom line is real yields are positive. Uh, I see a contraction in liquidity. Yep. Uh, whether I'm looking at central bank, you mentioned QT or QE, or whether I'm looking at central bank or actual bank reserves or short-term funding requirements, it is contracted. And when liquidity contracts, risk premium effectively contracts, i.e. you get a sell-off from risky assets. Mm. And that is not being priced into credit markets. Neither has it been priced into equity markets. Just to give you an idea, mm. when you model the relationship between PE ratios, forward PE ratios, mm. Uh, and uh, this liquidity combined index, which is effectively, as I mentioned, the central bank M2 and short-term funding requirements, it actually points to a correction of PEs from around about 17.5 to around about 13 for the S&P. Hmm. So you have a bearish equity outlook. Bearish, e bearish equity outlook and actually a bearish credit outlook hmm. as well. So mapping that to Europe, what do you think about the Bund curve and the Bund level? Look, well, when you look at the both curves, they always tend to be correlated. The only main difference here is if Europe does not go into recession, which is our base case, which is our economist's base case, mm. they see the impact of the lack of confidence around the banking sector as one which is going to shave off some of the growth that we see for this year and next year, but not significant. So it leaves more room for the ECB to tighten policy, even though we've scaled back our estimates in terms of where terminal rates are going to be. But it still means that the ECB can maintain a more hawkish stance. And it has been more hawkish if you look at the last meeting. So as such, the level of steepening that we've seen on the US curve, I think will not be as severe in Europe. In fact, I do know some pundits are looking at putting flattener trades on Europe versus steepener trades on the US.
uh, but overall level still going up this still year. Still going up, yes. Right. So that's a European fixed income right. negative. So uh, will the front end? You know, the front end has been you know quite volatile across rates markets. Do you yeah. think? Do you think the front end will continue to be the you know the place of action and be more more volatile, or will it settle down? Look, it's inevitable. You have come off a very high base of inflation. If you just look at the percentile over the last 30 years, you're in the, you're in the plus 90 percentile mm. in terms of inflation, right? Mm. So, um, yes, we're going to see inflation fall due to base effects. Yes, you'll see inflation fall due to contraction in liquidity. But still, there's a large section of that inflation which is related to services, non-shelter, non, uh, uh, which points to an environment which is very, very sticky inflation. So I, I think it's inevitable that uh, volatility in the rate space, in your most risk-free part of space, stays mm. high. It hasn't been risk-free, I can tell you no. that. Well, I mean, it's, it, the, the, the irony here is that you, your so-called risky assets have been less volatile yeah, than your risk-free exactly, assets. Exactly. So when I look at that picture, uh, I don't know whether you agree with my view on credit in an environment where obviously we see ongoing volatility on interest rates. How does that play out in your view? So two aspects that you mentioned. One is, you know, what is happening to liquidity and what is happening to the curve? Uh, so I let, I'll, before I get to the curve, let's talk about liquidity. So we've recently checked how liquidity has been doing in uh, credit whether it is trading volumes or trading costs, right? So, you know, it was an absolute disaster last year in terms of uh, liquidity costs, right? So till September, you know, we had a bit of an aggravation. The summer didn't help. But after that, costs to trade credit have come down until March. In March, we see, we saw a bit of bifurcation. Investment grades suffered a lot more in liquidity, I mean, probably because of these uh, banking issues. So investment grade trading costs have gone up by about a third, while high yield costs have stayed more or less where they were. Obviously, obviously high yield costs more to trade. But the point is, investment grade took a bigger hit to, uh, uh, to liquidity compared to where it was, let's say, in February. In terms of trading volumes, investment grade trading volumes fell in March during this crisis, uh, overall investment grade. I, I think banks, of course, there was a bit of in and out trading, uh, but overall investment grade trading fell. High yield trading was stable. So Jan, Feb, Jan was a record uh, you know, trading month, uh, but March high yield trading volume stayed similar to Feb, obviously much lower than high yield. Uh, so liquidity wise, yes, uh, credit took a hit in the bigger market. Uh, the smaller market, the lower rated one, seems to be where it is. So that's the liquidity story. On the curve, what has happened last year was, you know, thanks to this uh, central bank uh, hiking issue and what the curve has done in terms of inversion, front end massively underperformed during route as well as in the in the rally. So front end credit spreads looked really really wide until this. Uh, March crisis. So front end really underperformed the belly and long end. What happened in the last 15 days is that that has reversed a bit, uh, but I still front end does look cheap. I mean, if you look from a historic perspective, uh, front end has room to correct. Same, same like in rates. So there is more, uh, more room for the credit curve to steepen. I think what's interesting, what you said, if I compare it in terms of a look at flows, 
So we see ongoing inflows into investment grade in the US and in Europe. Yeah. In the US, actually, we see outflows out of high yield. Europe, we see inflows into high yield. So my question to you is, when I look at the new issue market, hmm. uh, we've seen new issue in high yield being very, very weak hmm. in comparison to last year. But actually, investment grade has been quite robust. It's yeah. had, if not in the US, it's been better than last yeah. year, whereas in Europe, it's actually the same as in last year. So how does that equate with your liquidity argument? So, uh, as I said, high yield, of course, is less liquid than investment grade. There's no doubt about that. It's probably about two and a half times mm. trading cost. That is a fact. But all I'm trying to do is, you know, give us a, you know, te temporal view. Like, how has it done relative to itself over time? Investment grade has suffered compared to high yield. So, talking about supply, investment grade has had an absolute bonanza in the first two and a half months. I tend to look at net supply because gross supply is very misleading. So if you look at net supply, it's about 60% of the entire 2022 has happened in two months, Jan and Feb. That is high investment grade. High yield though, net supply of next to nothing. Index net supply is near zero. So there was gross, but it is all essentially replacement. So we haven't had that net supply. So yes, which is probably another reason why fundamentals in the junk area are still holding up. We'll come to that later okay. on. So moving on, you mentioned, uh, you know, all these front-end hikes and so on, uh, you know, more rate hikes coming, uh, particularly in Europe, less so in US. So what impact does it have on the currency? Are we still in a strong dollar story? Remember 2022 was all that and it had a multifarious impact on various markets. Is that still the story? No. In fact, we see the dollar is overvalued. Yep. Uh, clearly, if the market is pricing in rate cuts for the US, that's not supportive for the dollar. Hmm. Uh, if you see an economic slowdown in the US, that's also not supportive for the dollar. Hmm. So if I look at positioning wise, in fact, uh, markets were pretty long the dollar last year. They are now short the dollar on a scale between zero and 50. It's around about 20. Hmm. So um, we see a broader short positioning which is playing out relative to the valuations and the broader interest rate differential dynamic that we're seeing uh, globally so i see a world of weaker dollar good um this is obviously supportive for emerging markets yep uh, but it also reflects the current uh, expectations in terms of monetary policy in the us and also economic growth in the us right so just to map it to credit you know we conduct this uh, quarterly investor survey and from a prefer US uh, credit, particularly high yield last year, yeah. you know, when oil was high and so on, it has swung towards Europe in the first quarter. I mean, the second quarter survey is running right now, so we don't have the results yet. So clearly there has been a swing towards Euro denominated assets, European investment grade and high yield preferred to US, uh, to US first, first quarter. So that's probably ties in with your view that you know, there's going to be more uh, demand for euro denominated assets than dollar uh, going forward in yeah. the next next few months. You did mention uh, the inflation story that inflation is coming down and at the same time, the recession risk is coming down. Uh, no, I said recession risk is going up. Is going up. Mm -hmm. If you look at the, if you look at the, there is a ec consensus economist probability on Bloomberg, yeah. ECFC, and if you do, and if you do ECFC, you know it used to be eighty percent recession probability, 
and now that has dropped to you know i mean obviously the number changes by the day uh it has dropped to anywhere between 55 to 45 depending on the day you yeah, look at that it. was from you know levels at the end of last year where there was very high expectations of recession both for europe and the us correct obviously in europe predicated on the contraction of energy and and, and higher energy prices and the us was obviously tightening of monetary policy um so the pendulum has swung from recession to inflation and soft landing which we saw in the first quarter now with the banking crisis is back to recession oh, again right so i see recessionary risk going up and that's predicated not only on on a contraction in broad scale liquidity but obviously you know the ongoing impact of tightening monetary policy what you've got to bear in mind is that the net impact of uh, tightening monetary policy gets felt uh, starts to get felt two quarters after the actual move and the peak is four quarters so we're still seeing an ongoing slowing with this tightening of monetary policy and then you just overlay that with the tightening of bank balance sheets and a contraction in liquidity basically growth has to slow right so have you asked me has inflation peaked yes it has peaked um independent of what i'm talking about uh, the with the economic growth slowdown and the impact that'll have on demand we're seeing base effects play through hmm. and those base effects will take inflation you know down to say in the us around about 3 3 and a half hmm. europe around about say to 2 and a half kind of levels hmm. um but the, the risk there is particularly if labor markets stay tight that that last section of inflation becomes very very difficult to squeeze lower okay um but be that as in may um you know i think we still got to see the full play out of this contraction in bank balance sheets on the economy right now to put you on the spot more than 50% chance of recession in you in us or less than 50% um look i think what we see at the moment uh, again i have to go back to what our economists are saying so they see um recession hitting in q3 basically of minus 0.3% same thing in q4 hmm. minus 0.3 and then minus 0.1 in q1 of next year that's a very shallow recession now that was US. Done, that's the us that was before we've had this regional banking crisis right so clearly with the regional banking crisis is going to deepen that that depth of recession hmm. is it a severe recession no i don't see it because hmm. you've got to bear in mind one thing which we have not discussed is this stock of excess liquidity still remains substantially above the beginning at the time of the beginning of the covid crisis and that stock of liquidity is still going to underpin economic growth and and financial markets right same for uh, europe more than 50% or less than 50% so in europe we don't see recession uh, a lot of the recession risk was driven by concerns around what was happening in energy markets and the rampant rise that we saw obviously in the in the cost of energy now that is obviously decimated uh, uh decreased um and also the warmer winter meant obviously supplies remained relatively well well stocked so uh, you know bottom line is you've had another factor that's playing out in favor of european growth is that the opening up of china and whilst the emphasis on china growth is uh, is, is focused on services services have a strong impact in terms of european manufacturing and european exports so europe is going to be buoyed also by the china opening up story so we do not see recession risk for europe so when i look at the you know this picture what we've laid out from an economic standpoint a liquidity standpoint how do you see credit fundamentals evolving very interesting actually so you know despite the debacle we had in terms of credit performance last year 
fundamentals have actually i wouldn't say robust uh, but they've been very resilient they took the hit quite well so let me explain so in terms of defaults last year entire last year we haven't had an index default well, let me clarify this is defaults that we saw in the european high yield index none we managed to see one in uh, in february uh, we'll see more but how many more you know in the previous uh, uh, podcast uh, called first default we highlighted how many really risky names are there in the index there are five triple c minus and below there are just five names so they are probably candidates to be uh, you know next to go under but overall that that number has been very resilient looking at fallen angels versus rising stars you know this is in terms of rating quality uh 2022 has been more rising stars than fallen angels even the first quarter marginally more rising stars than fallen angels we haven't seen a lot probably there it's coming but then we need to look at how uh rating agencies are seeing the ratings if you look at uh, q4 there were about 2.2 upgrades to downgrades in high grade but in in junk there were more downgrades than upgrades if you see for the quarter i mean we haven't finished the quarter yet but if you see in q1 investment grade is still running about 2 uh so more upgrades than downgrades more than double mm. uh junk is you know very close to 1 and uh, if you, you now that the earning cycle has finished we've run the fundamentals for high yield and then in an absolute shocker it is like leverage has seriously improved now it is not all because of earnings it is because there has been no supply so because there has been no net supply so the amount of debt holding in in junk companies has actually come down because remember 4q was massive negative net supply so that has showed up and so leverage actually has gone down coverage has gone down obviously because of interest up, in, in interest uh, expense going up but the main thing that you know the entire uh, leverage finance market is obsessed with is leverage leverage has gone down but um we see lending standards tightening yes there is always a correlation with it say two quarter lag between contraction in lending standards yep. and default rates now i agree with you default rates are very low very um and i also agree with you a lot of companies refinance their balance sheets in in 20 in 2020 uh and as such interest coverage ratios fell and maturity yep. was extended but you know i've been in this industry for quite a number of years and what i've always seen is when lending standards contract defaults rise so you know the picture you paint is very sanguine and i can understand that but how does that equate with what we're seeing as a as a forward indicator yep. in terms of risk so taking all that into consideration and the fact that we have a banking crisis roiling at the, at this time uh we published a forecast that index default rate will hit about 1% in 2023 peaking in 2024 now to put it into context peak index default rate during the pandemic was 1.8% so i am struggling to think given that the world has not shut down yes lending standards are tough but uh unless the bond markets completely shut down uh i struggle to see anything more than the pandemic default rate so we'll probably peak around the pandemic default rate in 2024 defaults will go up no doubt but i struggle to see more than that 
So where do you see risk in the credit spectrum then? A risk in the credit spectrum right now is still with the banking crisis going on, more in investment grade for, mm-hmm. for, for the very short term. Uh, because you see, high yield pays you 500 now. High yield pays you uh, 7 plus a coupon. So mm-hmm. the, the credit does pay. Uh, no, I agree credit. I do agree credit pays. But if economic growth is going to slow, I think we'll be more wary in the lower rated part of the credit spectrum, yep. triple C's and say double B's. If anything, we like the up in quality trade. Hmm. So, uh, you know, higher quality investment grade credits, relative hmm. higher quality, high yield credits, and even decompression investment grade relative to high yield. That that has happened in in March, like after Jan, Feb, what has happened is all the lower rated uh, ratings are looking too rich. So hmm. you're right. So that is correcting. But I'm talking more of a 2023 story, given the carry. Now that brings us to where would you want to be? Rates, stocks? credit um I, when i look at um the carry i'm receiving relative to the volatility actually the sweet spot is investment grade credit yeah um so you know i think i'll go back to my comment around the up and quality trade i think that still holds you, you might say what region would i prefer to be us versus europe uh, i'm of the view europe but wouldn't you want to be even more high quality and going to rates um, well, you know, I, I think... Because rates also pay now. No, rates do pay. But one of the drawbacks run rates has been the inverted curve. Mm. So if you look at 10-year treasuries paying you 4%, you can literally wipe, wipe off half of it due to roll up on the curve. Mm. Now, clearly, as the curve steepens, it gives you an opportunity to start to scale into duration. We run a, a portfolio which reflects our tactical allocation, and we've been very heavily overweight cash. With T-bills paying you 4.5%, it's been mm. quite a good trade. But we're going to be using that to scale into uh, fixed income. To give you an idea, last year we were distinctly underweight fixed income mm. and overweight equities, which performed very well. Mm. Uh, this going into the end of this year, we scaled down our, uh, our uh, weighting to equities to around about 35%. And we've scaled up our fixed income weighting um, to around about 44%. And that's a lot of that has been in the front end, actually investment grade credit mm. and the U and, and, and the curve plus tips we you use for duration. But I think we'll scale more into duration, actually, in the US. Hmm. Um, uh, now, as we see a further steepening bias, and as it becomes clearer uh, that uh, we've now peaked in rates, at least for this year. So given your PE view, you would like to you know, cut your stock allocation and move into fixed income? Um, well, I think we're going to cut our cash allocation and maybe potentially some of the stock allocation, correct? Um, we think US uh, um, stocks are more overvalued than Europe, which is obvious, and now you've seen big flows going into Europe. Mm. Um, we have been pretty overweight value, and that's been very painful. Obviously, we also had exposure to 81s. That's also been very painful. That said, when I look at Europe 81s or whether I look at uh, European banks, um, uh, whilst there's a lot of uncertainty and volatility at the moment, I'm still of the view that the the, the sector is sound. Um, and uh, some of this pricing that's been happening recently is an overshoot. So we will maintain our view that actually value will outperform. When I look at growth, growth stocks, um, PE ratios and, and expectations around earnings are way, way too high. It's an overvalued sector, no question about it. Yes, it gets supported when you're in a worrying about recession because obviously yields fall. 
Um, but again, when I look at uh, the liquidity argument relative to uh, CPEs, uh, growth uh, has to uh, correct. On that note, I think we conclude uh, this podcast. I hope uh, all of you enjoyed it. Uh, the podcast will be available on all uh, you know popular streams. Please look at uh, BASTRTE, our dashboard for all the data that we mentioned uh, in the podcast. And we'll be back again next month with our uh, next episode in the second week of uh, April. Thank you and uh, hope you enjoyed it.